The second thing before we jump into the text is you'll notice something slightly different about today's service. Now, all the parents in the room definitely are noticing something different about today's service. And so today is what we call Family Sunday, and we take an opportunity every once in a while to get us all in the room together. So we shut down our kids' ministry, we throw everybody in here, and let's just be honest, like it can be kind of loud, uh, they can move and wiggle a lot, and so what we've decided, what this is for us is an opportunity to see whom of you are good parents, okay? Um, just kidding. It's an opportunity for our kids to be able to be in here and, and, and worship with us and, and to experience what, our, uh, what your parent or what their, exp- their parents experience and kind of just be in this space. Oftentimes, there's, there's maybe too much of a gap between kind of kids' ministry uh, and, and kind of big boy church, right, and, and adult church. And so we're trying to bridge that gap every once in a while uh, by doing this Family Sunday, bringing everybody together. So that being said, listen, we get it. So if they're going crazy and they're screaming and wiggling, that's fine. Like, and we're all on the same, we're like in the same place today where we understand that's a reality. Um, it'll be different and back to, you know, quote unquote normal next week, but bear with each other in that. Help each other out. If a kid escapes through the back, is running into the street, someone chase them down if the other parent's holding three other kids. You know what I'm saying? So um, we're here to serve one another and worship together and, and have a good time. So that being said, open up your Bibles. We have to move quick because we'll try and keep this a bit shorter today to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give one to you this morning right here. Uh, Anybody, put your hand up. Don't feel weird about this. We give out tons of these every single week. If you don't own a Bible, grab one today. Take it with you. Read it. Give it away if you you do have one and you have a friend that wants one. Okay, so open up to Acts chapter 14. It is the chapter after Acts chapter 13 and just before Acts chapter 15. Got that? Okay. Here's where we're at in the book of Acts. Quick, quick recap if you haven't joined us. And again, we see some new faces. We've been in the book of Acts for almost 25 weeks now, just kind of going through this narrative, this narrative about the early church and it trying to fulfill the commission that Christ has given them as he was ascending to heaven, right? So, so Jesus dies the death that we all deserve to die on the cross. Our sins were placed on him. He goes to the cross in fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy from the Old Testament. He goes to the cross. He's killed. He then rises from the dead three days later, signifying victory over Satan's sin and death, freedom for those who would confess and believe in what he has done, okay? Now, he spends some time on earth after his resurrection, spending time with people and giving them some last instructions before he ascends into heaven. As he goes up, the Holy Spirit begins to come down. They high-five, a little fist bump. Holy Spirit descends upon the church in Acts chapter 2, all trying to be motivated and pushed towards This fulfillment of God, Jesus in the flesh saying, take this gospel, take this good news, and bring it to the world. Like, this isn't just for the 12 of you. It's not just for the 100 of you. This is for the world, that the gospel, the good news, what I have done is for all of creation to be redeemed and brought back into right relationship with its creator. And so he's like, go tell the world this. And so we are about 25 weeks, 14 chapters, uh, years now into this process, and we have seen the church explode. It went from kind of that 11 that came out after Judas decided to be a traitor, right? After that 11, it has grown now into the tens, if not the hundreds of thousands of converts and believers coming from all backgrounds, ethnicities, and walks of life to come and be the church for the sake of the gospel in the world. So that's where we've been. 
What we get to see today is two of kind of our our missionary guys that have been set apart by God, Paul and Barnabas, two of the early church leaders are coming in and they're going to say, hey, I need to go on this journey, right? So they're going to go on this missionary journey, helping to plant churches, helping to spread and share the gospel in predominantly Gentile territories. Now, Gentile means non-Jew, right? So if you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile. So they are now taking this gospel to the ends of the earth, outward from just Jerusalem into the farther parts of the region to say, again, the gospel is for all people from all backgrounds. And so what we have today is entitled, the sermon is, is Lessons from the Mission Field, right? Uh, and and I, I had the opportunity for some years of my life to travel quite a bit and, and, and experience different countries and started thinking through, man, I learned different things based on different places I went to. But really the scene that popped in my head is the movie Forrest Gump. Who has seen Forrest Gump? Okay. Who has not seen Forrest Gump? Okay, well, can't all be Christian. All right. Um, so Forrest Gump is like amazing. We'll do that later. We're going to do a viewing, you and I, right now. Actually, let's go. Okay. <laughs> Forrest Gump is one of my favorite movies of all time. And if you don't know the story, there's this guy, Forrest Gump, and he has this opportunity to live this insane life that kind of just falls in his lap. He kind of just falls into crazy story after crazy story after crazy story. Now, the movie picks up, and he's sitting on a park bench talking to random people as they walk up and they hear more about his past. He says, well, you know, I went, I went to Vietnam, and he does the whole Vietnam War story. He played football in Alabama because he was running away from some people that were picking on him as a kid. I mean, the story after story after story crafts him into who he is and allows him to learn more about himself and, and more about his story. And people get to come in, and they say, well, what's this? And they prod and ask questions. What we're going to get today, I think, is an opportunity where Paul and Barnabas now returning to the church at Antioch, where they were sent from, okay, and they're sitting down, and the way I kind of picture is they're just probably sitting up front like a panel, and the guys are just asking questions, hey, well, what happened in this city, and what happened in this city, and and what'd you learn here about the gospel, and what'd you learn over there about the gospel, and so that's kind of how we'll work through a rather long text today, is, is kind of pretending we're in this moment, the guys have come back to the church at Antioch, and we're going to interview them about how their mission trip went. Right? In all the visits of all these different cities, hey, would you learn about Jesus? Would you learn about the gospel in that city? And how does it help us as a church move forward? Okay, so that's, that's our goal here. And so let's open up again. Acts 14, starting in verse 1. Let's get going. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, so I imagine this. Okay, now we're all back in the church in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are on stage, and, and, and I'll be the interview. Paul, Barnabas, so what did you learn in, in Iconium? Like, what, what, was, what was kind of maybe the biggest take-home? And there will be multiple. This is kind of a bigger text. There's lots we could probably pull from this. But, but Paul, like, what, what was the biggest thing that, that you feel you learned about the gospel? And, and I think he'd probably say something like this. I think he'd say, well, you know, the gospel is always good news for everyone. 
but it's not always good news to everyone, okay? So the gospel is good news for everyone, but I don't know if it's always good news to everyone. Well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? I think what he's trying to get at is that the gospel is this beautiful picture, right, of, 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 of a savior coming into a situation where there was brokenness, pain, and there was to be no success outside of the coming of that savior. Right, so the story and the narrative of the entire scriptures is all about a people now fallen in sin from Genesis chapter 3, trying to claw their way back to a God they used to be united with. Okay? And, and, and it didn't work. Right? Like Everything that was set up that would hopefully get the people back never really worked. And so Jesus was the answer ever since the beginning. Ever since the fall, the answer was going to be Jesus. He was going to come, live the perfect life that no one else could live die the death in the penalty that we deserve to die, and raise on the third day that, again, that in faith in him, we would be reunited with God. He has always been the answer. Now, that is truly good news for everybody, whether they believe it or not. This remains true to this day, that I don't know where all of you stand in this room this morning, in your relationship with God, in your faith in Christ, your faith in general. But I want you to know that what I just said, that's just the true story of the world, whether or not you believe it or not. And it is good news for you, whether or not you believe it or not. But it will only be good news to you when you believe it. You see, because if it's just kind of this thing that's out there that has no part in your life, that you just kind of leave to this subsection, well, I'm not going to deal with it. It's not really all that good news to you. Yeah, it's there for you, but its effect in your life is not there. And so I would like to invite us all into that. Okay, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you into this, this true story of the world with which should shape all of you. A faith in Christ, a belief in what he has done, accomplished on your behalf that you would walk in his statutes. For those Christians in the room, that we would more and more be enveloped into this story, into this truth, and into this reality. The gospel is not just for us, but it is to us. In other words, it should be influencing the way we live and the act and what we believe about us. So what we see in this story is there's this really good news that's out there for the people, the Jews and the Gentiles here in the city of Iconium. But they don't believe it, and so they rebel. Right, the good news is there for them. That's why Paul and Barnabas have come to preach. Like, listen up, guys. Like, here's the true story of the world. Here's what Christ has done for you. They choose not to believe it. And in the rebellion, they then rise up and say, well, then let's, let's, not, let's not just be frustrated and walk away. Let's actually try and put this down. And so they go to stone Paul and Barnabas. To, to kill these guys with this message. So the gospel, listen, as we go as a church, as you engage in all of your various settings, as Anthony said, that all of life is all for Jesus, no matter where you are at, whatever role God has called you in, that God wants to use you there. You are there for the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's not always going to work out to a place where everyone's going to believe it that way. Okay. But that doesn't change the calling and the conviction of Paul and Barnabas here to preach the gospel. They're not based on the results, they're based on the truth. They go and they preach because this actually happened. This is the true story. And so they go and they share there in the city of Iconium. Okay? <clears throat> now, quickly, just for the kids in the room, because I do want to address you guys a couple times, and some of you are really small, so Amelie, really pay attention here. Okay, this one's for you. I love you, dear. Okay? Your parents' kids are there for your good. Okay? And so some of you older kids... You need to start listening up a little bit, all right? 
that, listen, what they want for you, for the most part, if they're good parents, and I know a lot of them and they're decent, okay, um, what they want for you is good and blessing and care and success and all the stuff, right? They want all that for you. And so when they try and give you advice and give you good news and give you, hey, maybe do this this way or this that way, listen up. Don't do what we see here in the text just to make this very practical for you little kids. Your parents love you more than you realize. And if it means anything coming from the guy who's yelling at you on stage, please listen to your parents who want more for you than you would ever realize. With Finley, my little dude over here is just hanging out. He's only almost three, so he barely knows what I'm saying most times. But just the other day, we're in the bathtub, and, you know, he's bathing, and it's time to get out. Finn, you remember this, little dude? Yep. And so he's bathing, and I'm like, hey, man, it's it's time to get out because it's time to go to bed. It was like 9.30, way past his bedtime. I know if he doesn't get sleep, he gets cranky. He's not happy about life either. Okay, so I'm like, all right, Finn, time to get out of your bath. And so what does he do? He cries, right? He's blares. Ah! You wonder how long I'm going to go. Ah! No, he just starts screaming. And then he takes the squeegee from our shower and chucks it at me, right? I mean, he's like, so in that moment, after prepping this text, I'm like, I know how Paul felt. Like, he got stoned. I'm getting squeegeed, okay? I was experiencing the deep persecution of one that I love, not listening to the good news I had for him, right? Kids, your parents love you more than you realize. So, so when, 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 like Paul here in the story is coming to these people with good news and they're saying, ah, I don't, I don't know. Instead, I don't like it because it's kind of coming against some of the things I want to do. So like with my son, he just wanted to stay in the bath, but I wanted him to get out. I knew better than he did. He should listen, listen to your parents who love you so much. Let the good news that they have, the wisdom that they have, please wash over you more than we do. Okay, so verse eight, let's keep going. Now at Lystra, There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to him dwell, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to sacrifice with the crowd. So so this is kind of just a bridge of what's happening in Lystra, and we'll interview Paul again in just a moment. But let's just recap the story a little bit. So the guys now move on to this next city. They're preaching the gospel. And then all of a sudden, they they see this crippled man. Now, here's what's interesting about the book of Acts. I I read this story a few weeks ago as I started to prep it, and and, and I just kind of like, oh, yeah, another guy got healed. Like, matter-of-factly, no big deal, because it's just so commonplace in the book of Acts that, yeah, someone got healed, no, no big deal. But how amazing, again, they walk into this place as a testimony of the power of God. God flaunts and heals this guy, and all of a sudden, people look upon this, and you would hope then, because of what Paul and what Barnabas have been preaching, they would say, this must be the God of the Jews, right? Which kind of would have been the God of the Christians, right? This is Yahweh. This is not Greek gods. It's not Zeus. This is not Hermes. No, this is Yahweh. Yahweh, this is God. But no, they, they misplace their worship 
and begin to worship other gods, other idols. Now, I just saw the movie Wonder Woman, which was fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, go see it. Really good, okay? But in Wonder Woman, there is a point to this. Um, Wonder Woman comes from the lineage of the Greek gods. And it struck me as I was watching that movie how, you know, the whole idea is like, oh, she comes from that. It's unbelievable. There's no chance, that type of thing. And how back then, the reality of gods for the Greek people that they're speaking to, including Yahweh, the Jewish God, was just very real. Like Zeus and, and Hermes and then Yahweh and, and the God of the Bible were all not, just, they were believed to be real and they were all on the same page, Right? Like they were all at the same level. No one was kind of better than others. It was just like, oh, that just must have been Zeus. I just find it funny today in our culture that we've, we've, they're still at the same level. Like we don't think Zeus is any better than God. Just in our culture now, we've just lowered them from being real and deity to being not real and non-deity. And the reason why this is important is because we look upon our culture as a church, uh, as people of God who are called to go preach the gospel to our city, we have to understand where people are coming from. The people in our culture, and listen, specifically in the city of Flagstaff, I don't know where all of you are from, but really here in this city, the, the movement towards God's not a real thing is just there. And so many of our arguments and many of our presentations of the gospel have to take that into account. That the world that we preach to has divorced themselves from the reality of an omnipotent deity that is controlling the worlds. And if that's true, man, there's a lot of other work that need be done, okay, than just to kind of come in and, and kind of say things as they are. That being said, they go in and they preach and they <coughs> get uh, attributed to, to other gods, Zeus, Hermes, so they begin to get worshipped as gods. Let's see their response here in verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So the mission in Lystra continues. They continue to preach, and Paul and Barnabas now sit down and say, listen, you're missing it. Like, we're... We're not those guys. Like, we're, we're just men like you. Like, we're no better. We're no worse. It's, it's this whole time you're trying to put the emphasis on us. It's not about us. It's, it's about this God that has been ever-present since the beginning. And you may not realize it, but the reason why you live and breathe and eat today is because he is God. And we think about our culture, and I think about us even sitting here this morning, we, we tend to prop up individuals within our culture, and we tend to idolize them. So I imagine if we just sit in front of Paul and say, well, Paul, what's one of the biggest things you learned about the gospel? And I imagine he would say something like, the gospel challenges the idols and gods of our day. Okay? That the gospel is going to push back against the idols and gods of our day. So for them, listen, they literally had Greek gods with whom they relied on for everything. Zeus was the king of gods, Hermes the messenger, and on down the line. Ares, the god of war, etc. Aphrodite, love, you get it. Okay? 
And so they, they put faith in these guys. Would you provide this? Poseidon, give us rain, God of the oceans. And so they went and they entreated the whole time and they continued to ascribe things that did not belong to these gods and had them misplaced in their worship. So we bring that to 2017 and we'd be fools not to ask the question of what are the gods and the idols of our day? That when you come and you go to present the gospel to people, that that's the reality they're living in. Now, we could spend a whole, I mean, like a whole nother sermon just talking through this reality. So I just bring up one. And I think it's more than ever, I think it's self. That the God of self, the God of individualism, is the one that rules the day now more than ever. It's about what you want. It's about your desire. It's about your worldview. There is no objective truth. Believe whatever you'd like and do whatever you want. Maybe as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. But even, let's be honest with that, that tends to be more kind of on a scale. Well, it doesn't hurt them that much, and so I'll still do it. Okay. So the God of individualism, I believe, is a God that rules the day. It's the idol that confronts us and confronts the gospel. So when we come and we preach and we say, listen, here's this story, and we, un- we unroll all of this reality. Listen, it's difficult for it to make sense within a culture that is focused on you being the center of the universe. Because if you're the center of the universe, then everything revolves around you, everything you want, everything you desire. So if anything would come and say, actually, maybe this is the best way to live your life, that immediately gets thrown out the door because that no longer fits in with the glorified idol of the day. So the gospel is going to challenge the idols of our culture, and it's that, that includes the idols of our heart. And so those of us that would sit here this morning, that would say, oh man, poor culture, man, no, acknowledge and test yourself. And does the gospel really push against some of the stuff that's in here that crafts me? My own individualism, my own pride, my own sins, my own proclivities, whatever it may be. Is the gospel pushing against that and calling you to also repent as Paul and Barnabas are calling the people here in Leicester to repent and see God? To not miss a test why you have the things you have in your life. So much of our culture today believes that what they have in their bank accounts, what they have in their homes, what you will drive away in right now, the friendships, the feelings that you have are all based in things that you and or we achieved, and that is just false. God is the author of this world. He is the creator, sustainer, and he holds it all in the palm of his hand. That there is no thing you or I own that we earned outside of his grace and his favor. Now, now if that's true, that that is a completely different worldview in a way that we walk out this life. And it challenges the world and the culture that we reside in. Now, I wonder if potentially Paul would say something like, hey man, can I get one more, kind of one more lesson from, uh, from Lystra? And I would say yes. Well, what was it? And I'd say, well, you know what? The gospel is not safe. I think he'd say that. I think he'd say, you know what I learned is, is I mean, there's been some different times where, man, it's, it's gotten a little heated for me as I've traveled around, but I need you to know the gospel is not safe. There's this amazing story from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe that many, many of you have read and or seen the movie, right? Um, where, where they're talking and, and the kids are asking about this, this lion named Aslan. And uh, kids, if you haven't read 
that series, please go leave today and, and read that series. Okay, so um, there's the lion named Aslan, and he's the Christ figure. And, and the kids are asking, well, they're asking about Aslan. They say, I mean, he seems, he seems scary. Like, I mean, they ask this question, they say, ask him, is he safe? And, and the response is, no, you know, he's not safe, but he is good, and he is the king. See, the gospel, I think Paul would, would remind us of that. I think Paul would probably quote C.S. Lewis, right? Because, you know, Paul zoomed to our present day. And so he's like, oh, yeah, I love, love Lewis, right? Um, and so I think Paul would say something like that. He's like, no, no, no he's not safe, okay? Um, but he's good and he's the king. Listen, the gospel is not safe. You want, to, you want me to testify to something I'm learning as I travel around preaching the gospel? The gospel isn't always safe. It gets me into situations, it challenges things, and that upsets people. They stoned me, for crying out loud, because I preached something that pushed so much against the idolatry of the day. The gospel isn't always safe, and yet I think we've created a Christianity that only works if we're safe. When that's not the promise. Now, now, now also notice, though, in the previous story, they find out they're going to get stoned, and they're like, no thanks, and they get out. So this isn't, hey, look for a stoning, okay? And I don't even mean it as a joke. Like I got a buddy, one of my old mentors, his dream and vision for his life is to be martyred. Like he's seeking it out. So going on a mission trip to Turkey with him was the craziest experience of my life. Like it was at every moment, like how can we die? I was like, oh my gosh. Don't seek it out, but also don't be surprised when it gets rough. Now for... 250 years, this hasn't been something we've had to think about too much. And let's be honest, it's 2017, it's still not something we have to think about all that much. There's not a ton of public stonings happening across our nation right now against Christians. Christians are not the great persecuted majority of our nation. We still live in tons of favor in this place. But Regardless of what we see in the sways and the, and the trajectories of culture, more than that, we see in the sways and the trajectories of the Bible, which seem to point to persecution and hardship more often than excitement, joy, and rainbows. And so, so I just ask them, do we believe the gospel isn't always going to be safe? Does, that, does it give us an accurate perspective of what the life of the Christian should look like? What we're being called into? Because also, and now I'm rabbit trailing, but let's be honest that oftentimes the gospel that we've preached to one another was not a gospel that was all that accurate to scripture, but one that just got people to pray a prayer. Right? So well, let's pray this and then we're good. And then we'll kind of toss in the fact that you could die for this at some point in your life. Now, again, that probably won't happen, but it does. And a lot of times it's not here. Okay? Now, the gospel is not safe. The gospel challenges our idols. Verse 20, we'll see this last little part that Paul talks about. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to the city that had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, so we're sitting down with Paul again, Zoom to back to our interview. Paul, so, so then you, you, you went to Derby and you preached the gospel there, and it sounds like from the narrative that you went back to the cities that were forcing you out. Like you went back to the cities where people were upset with you to go and encourage 
the believers, the church, the church, and the faithful, and appoint elders. Like, you're crazy, man. He's like, well, what, what are we going to do? Just leave the believers without encouragement, without exhortation, without leadership. No, I, I went back because that was what we have to do because the gospel is the paramount purpose of my existence. Because more than his safety and his security, Paul realized that his purpose and calling in life was to give glory to God and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he went back to each of these cities, even, in, even amongst impending death and danger, because he understood what the calling of his life was. I think because he probably had a bit more of an eternal perspective than kind of our temporal perspective. He had something that said, you know what, like what Jesus seemed to talk about was more than just the 60 to 80 years I get in this world, but it seems to talk about eternity that goes on forever, and I'm living for that. So he goes back to encourage these churches, and I would ask him one last time, Paul, what did you learn about the gospel on that last little part of your journey? And I wonder if he would say this. You know what, I learned a bunch of things, but maybe this is what I learned the most, is that the gospel requires us all. The gospel requires us all. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that, Paul? He's like, look, like, I went to those cities, and, and Barnabas and I, we, we were preaching, and we saw some people get saved. We saw some people try and stone us. But, but we didn't stay there forever. No, there were brothers and sisters in Christ. They did the real work. Like They went and loved their cities. They went and preached the gospel. They went and, and drew people in and told them of the good news. They're the ones that were there faithfully, day after day, engaging in their community and their city for the sake of its flourishing and the sake of its redemption and reconciliation back to God. There were leaders that we appointed there. There were people who said, hey, listen, I need you to help shepherd these people. It wasn't just us, but it was an all hands on deck. The world must know that this Jesus really did die and raise from the dead, that all of mankind would be redeemed. This is the true story of the world. And for it to take off, the gospel requires us all. It's, it's, not, it's not just going to be about Paul and Barnabas preaching. Listen, it's not just going to be about Vince and Anthony and Randy, the elders of this church, to be able to, to lead this and change the city. It's not going to be just about Redemption Church Flagstaff that's going to change Flagstaff. It's going to be our other brothers and sisters who preach a gospel consistent with the scriptures that are going to help change this world and win it back for the sake of the name and glory of Jesus. It requires us all yet we tend to live lives as if it's just about us. Or, I think even more so, it's just about the other person over there figuring this out. So, you know, these people need to know about Jesus. Well, someone will come along and tell them. My, my neighbors, who I've been, right, like perfectly placed next to, like I can hear them through our, our uh, what's the thing, what are we living in, a townhouse? I can hear it through our townhouse wall, their conversations, their annoying dog, I can hear it all, strategically placed next to them, and yet when it comes to Christ, I'm largely silent. Someone else will probably figure it out. I had this one time where I go to my front door, I answer the door, and these two amazing sweet old ladies just come around preaching the gospel. It was amazing. It must have been in their 80s. Just come up, hey, do you know Jesus? And I was like, yeah, I do, you know. But, and, and like, what are you doing? You know, and they're like, well, we just kind of do this. We pick a street every month, and we just go and tell people about Jesus door to door. And like, so, and she asked me, she goes, so what's this? She, and I, she, I go, oh, well, I'm a pastor, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm one of you, we're good. And she says, oh, okay. 
She's like, then we could probably just go home, right? Because you've already done all this. I'm not kidding. She says, like, so what's the spiritual climate of your street? Like, what do these people believe? And I just was like, all right. (laughs) And I remember making some stuff up. Not really, (laughs) but kind of. I would say, well, you know, I know them, and well, well, he does this. And I would say, well, you know, that's his occupation. And then I would kind of try and assume some things about what it meant to be in that occupation. And I would kind of talk about their life, but when it came to where their hearts were at spiritually, I had no idea. So I just talked a bunch to just say a bunch of things. When these two faithful women were just like, okay. I was like, and then right before they left, I was like, but you should go anyway. Maybe they'll answer you better, you know. And so they went and they preached. And I was just thinking to myself, like, oh, come on, man. Someone else is not going to do it. In that situation, somebody else did do it. But maybe it was a terrible illustration. <laughs> so just actually like, I'll just wait for those ladies to come by. Somebody else isn't going to do it. You're going to do it. Because you live there. Because you work where you work. Because you play where you play. Because your kids play where they play. And then you meet people because your kids play where they play. Okay? You're going to do it. Now, listen. This is not, you better do it, or God's not, don't hear legalism here, because that's easy, and that's not what I'm trying, but let's just be honest about how God ordains and sets us up and says, man, just, just do what I do. Talk about me. Share about me. Draw people close to me. This, this gospel, it requires us all. It's not just going to be the all-stars and the hot shots, the really great preachers, okay? It's not just going to be about the really great missionaries, the great evangelists, you know, there was just that big uh, Greg Laurie thing down the valley, right? There was like 55,000 people in Arizona Cardinal Stadium, right? And so the thing packed out. You could be like, hey, well, good job, Greg. Now I don't have to do nothing. No, no, no. God puts you where he's put you on purpose. God requires us all in this. And at the same time, let's be honest, requires none of us. Because God is sovereign. God is good and God saves and he will accomplish his purposes, not because of us, but in spite of us. And that is the good news of the gospel this morning. Is that you and I can fumble through the next, I mean, some of you, got, some of you kids in here, you've got hopefully 80 to 100 years left. For me, I'm hopefully staring at 50 to 60. For some of you others, let's, let's be honest, 20, okay? 30. What are we doing with those? Like, what are we doing with this, with this time? Because the gospel is calling us to push against the idols of this world. I, I think if Paul was, was interviewing before the church in Antioch, he's telling them to keep pressing on and pushing on. He, I think these are four core principles. They say, man, we need to get this kind of stuff. We want to keep moving forward. Because the gospel is worth it. The reality that there is this beautiful story out here that is the true story of the world that in spite of our sin and brokenness and everything we've done to hurt each other and disobey God, God provided a way back to himself because of his love and because of his grace. That is good news for us this morning. So we'll read this last passage and we're done. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, declared all that God had done with them. 
how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and then remained no little time with the disciples. We gather back together in the church at Antioch. We pick it up kind of in our scene with interviewing Paul and he just said, well, here's everything God did. My last encouragement for us as a community of faith this morning or even if you're here and that's not your story, that you would get around people who have that story and the question, like, hear me, if, you guys, if any of you guys are going to lunch, if families, you guys are going to lunch, maybe with other families too, would you guys please just answer this one question at your table today at lunch? What's God doing? Like, what's God doing in and around you right now? Because what they did is they got back to the church and everyone's like, hey, will you declare to us, will you tell us what God is doing? And as we do that, we encourage and exhort each other on to love and good deeds we exhort each other to have greater understandings of the gospel in our own lives. It says, even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our brokenness, our pain, our depression, there is a God, there is a perfectly good Father who loves us perfectly, that always wants the best, and that proved it on the cross 2,000 years ago. So get around and declare this week all that God has done, encouraging our hearts to be able to try and remain faithful and be the church and be the Christian that God has called us to be a messed up, broken, silly little group of people that just do our best and praise God because of his grace and because of the cross. And even when we fail, he picks us up. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. You are the God of this universe. You are true. Your word is true and your gospel is true, God. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us today. Thank you for all the kiddos in here. God, you say that your word doesn't return void, and so I spoke super fast, and there was a lot, and it was, I pray that your word goes deep and pierces the deepest parts of our hearts and souls, especially in our little ones that join us this morning. God, that they would be moved and shaped by the, by the word, God, that you've given us. God, that they would be moved and pushed towards you. God, that you would allow them to encounter you and to know you, and that, Lord, we do pray, God, that you would save you would constantly reveal yourself in powerful and new ways, and that you would shape us to look more like Jesus. God, that we would be a people for the sake of this city and for the sake of your glory, not just here in Flagstaff, but around the world. God, thank you for opportunities to jump into narratives and stories like this. God, we pray that, God, you would call us into similar narratives, God, even in our own city as we go from work to home to play to church and back around every week. God, what do we learn about you? And we declare that to the world, all that you have done in Jesus' name. Amen.